Welcome to the Be In Cyber podcast. The idea of this podcast is to showcase the diverse range of careers available within cybersecurity. Our guest today is Stephen Deutsch, who's had a lengthy career within SOC and Managed Detection and Response. He's going to share with us some of his knowledge and his experiences over the past 10-15 years. Let's take it away. Welcome to the Be In Cyber podcast. This week we've got Stephen Deutsch of Lodestone. Welcome along, Stephen. Come and tell me a bit about yourself for those who don't know. Sure. So I run the managed detection and response practice for Lodestone. So I run the SOC. I've got some analysts in the UK and I've got some analysts, or a bunch of analysts, mainly in Texas, which leaves me stretched across the uh, working day because they're six hours behind us. And uh, Lodestone are wholly owned by a FTSE 100 insurance company called Beasley, who are the largest underwriter of cyber insurance in the world. And they have 12, 13% of the global cyber insurance market. And I provide MDR services mainly to Beasley's insured. So for those who don't know what MDR is, that's managed detection and response. Is that right? It is indeed, yeah, managed detection response. So the difference between managed SOC and MDR and XDR and the various other acronyms that vendors will chuck around is angels on the head of a pin, really. So the Security Operations Centre, and that's very much my background, deliver managed detection and response as a service. So we don't just monitor customer environments. We also have the ability to do things like contain endpoints. So you can isolate an endpoint if you believe it to be compromised. And that will allow it to talk back to the central console of the agent you've got on it, but not talk to any other thing on the network. So how how did you get into that role? How did you get into consultancy? So I, I mean, certainly my career path is not one that anyone else could reasonably follow, but I'll say I'm happy to talk about it. So I started off many, many years ago doing networking. I worked uh, for a provider of data center space in their NOC. And then I got a job with a company called Betfair, who were at the time the world's largest gaming website, gambling website. And I worked in their GNOC, which was their site operation center, really. Um, So we made sure that the website was up and available and all of the myriad of components worked in the way that they were meant to work and were available when they were meant to be available. And I think betting companies typically, you wouldn't think of them as a threat, but... Betfair then, Betfair now, I think, is is almost like a bank. People deposit money to them and they hold money on deposit. They don't pay interest, obviously, but... You know, they are subject to a bunch of the same fraud and data theft risks that any financial institution is is subject to. And, you know, in, in Betfair's case, it, it was a lot of money they had at any one time. I suppose the other thing is if, if you're putting a bet on the national and the horse is about to run, if Betfair's down, you're going to go to their competitor. So in terms of like DDoS attacks and massive amounts of money, they could lose. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So so DDoS was certainly one of the things that we worried about. 
but yeah, I mean, the, the, the availability of the platform, both was I, when I was in the NOC and then when I moved over to the security site, was, was, was really important. I mean, the Grand National actually, um, surprisingly, not that important to us. I know it's the, you know, the betting front of the, the event that people are most familiar with, but actually things like the Cheltenham Gold Cup are much more important to, are much bigger in the racing calendar. The National is the one that everyone knows the ordinary punter knows, but but people who are professional gamblers and, and bet for quite a lot of, of serious professional gamblers who who made money every year, that they, you know, that, that the Gold Cup was the thing that they really focused on, Cheltenham and, and, and Spring Racing. So where did you go from there then? What was next in your sort of career journey? Uh, so, well, Betfair suffered uh, a compromise, which you, I'm sure, can read about. It's more than 10 years ago now, so it's very much old news. And... They started to spend a lot more money on security, as you'd imagine, and I got poached by the threat and vulnerability management team, the head of the threat and vulnerability management team, out of the knock and into his team, for which I'm always still eternally grateful to him. And that was my start in security. He had people that knew security that he'd hired from outside, but he didn't have anyone who understood Betfair and how it all hung together and so yeah that was that was my start in security which is not easily i think reproducible by other people very much in the right place at the right time i think sort of knocks i've been in recruitment for a while now knock was what was very much telecoms businesses it was big scope uh big teams and it's what is now probably more of a sock it's it's a nice way into a telecom business from a starting point but i think what you kind of see is if somebody understands the business and how a business operates, it's very easy to promote into security roles, which is what we see in other businesses as well. Or I think it's a nice starting point for somebody because you already understand about betting and gambling or whatever that business is, is and how it operates. It's a it's an easy way to promote somebody into security from from within the business. Well, yes, and and, and, the, and the tremendously complex architecture that underpinned a website that would do on a busy Saturday afternoon was take 100,000 requests a second across its its front end. Um, you know, it was a busy, busy, busy website. And yeah, it was, it did convert. I mean, I, I cybersecurity has changed immeasurably since then. And that's 12 years ago now that I moved that, made that jump across and it's, it's changed enormously. But it, at that time, it wasn't a place where anyone got their first job. There were no entry-level jobs in security, and I think it's only because of the growth of the security market that there are entry-level jobs. I'm still not entirely convinced that a security job is an entry-level job, and I know that you know the the, the step up is enormous. The, the body of knowledge that you need to know is colossal. I think it's probably reached the point where nobody knows it all. You can't know everything. It's a continual. It's a job that's you've got to be a continual lifelong learner. You do, and it, that that's one of the things I I love about it. I will say it's the most interesting way I've found to pay the mortgage. But yeah, it's it it's fascinating, and and it's the, the the pace of change. So I moved from Bet, Betfair into a consulting role for a little while um, with a big Indian outsourcing company, and then I moved from there to a company that that did payment processing. So one of the things about Betfair was they were a tier one PCI merchant. So they did they took they, they they handled an enormous number of credit cards. And a lot of the focus of the security team was around protecting the credit card environment. 
Um, so I, I worked for a payment processor and then I was offered a job at the UK Central Bank, Bank of England, to help them build the security operations centre. So I was the lead in, in the bank SOC. Now that must have been an interesting role. It was very much an interesting role. The bank doesn't do anything quickly. It, it does do things in its own words for all time. And so it takes a, can take a fairly leisurely approach to getting things done. But it was a really fascinating place to work with some extraordinary people and some really critical assets to protect. Um, you know, if people are only familiar with the banknotes, um, that is a very small part of, of what the bank does. One of the things the bank does is it underpins UK interbank settlements. So if you've ever had a payment from a bank that was not yours in the UK, it will have crossed across the Bank of England's uh, settlement system which is something like £700 billion a day. Wow. I imagine if you could hack into that, you'd, you, you wouldn't need to... You wouldn't need to work again, probably. We don't encourage hacking, though, actually, on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. In, in, indeed, indeed. And, and it, you know, it's, it's, it, it was a concern both from, from that, you know, financial motives, but also being able to interrupt. The settlement system is clearly a thing that, 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 you know, the sophisticated threat actors who would want to be able to do that or have the capacity to do that, you know, to, to, to break the banking system is obviously a thing that some people would want to do. So, yeah, that was a fascinating place to work with some amazing people. And yeah. So you set up the brand new SOC there. Did they not have one before? <laughs> No, they didn't have one before. So they had a security engineering team and the security engineering team had, you know, were responsible for running the security technology and looking at the outputs. But what they didn't have was, and that's also the the distinction I make between, you know, who is running the tin and who is looking at the output of the tin. They didn't have a dedicated team looking at the output. So... That was a kind of then the division of labor between running the security technology and monitoring the output of a security technology and tuning it and doing all of those things. Then that that was the split. So they absolutely had a security team and took security extremely seriously, as you'd imagine for an organization that's got a couple of hundred billion in gold in the basement, um, amongst amongst other things. You know, they 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 were they were they, they take security extremely seriously and always been willing to spend money on it and hire good people and, and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, and then so after the bank, I uh, spent a little bit of time with uh, a big consultancy, um, which I did not enjoy. And then I moved to a couple of much smaller consultancies, both of which have, one of one of them has completely disappeared, absorbed by by a behemoth. And the other one was 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 bought out, and I think is has is still largely the same people and doing a fine job. Um, and I did a bunch of interesting things there. So I did uh, salt consulting, so going in and helping people develop and mature their security operation centres. They were also very much both of them focused on doing red teaming, so CRESSAR, CBEST, and GBEST. So CBEST against tier one financial institutions and GBEST against government departments. And so I did a bunch of work in the back end of those engagements. So both CBEST and GBEST finished with a detection and response assessment where you, someone needs to go and work out, well, actually, what did the client see? What did they not see? What did they detect? What did they not detect? How did they respond to it? 
Um, and so some of the, the, the best value from the point of view of the client is actually not to prove that someone can own them, but actually how can we get better so that, that, that this is, would be more difficult? Yeah, which is the whole point of those. Absolutely. But often often in, the, in those sorts of engagements, that last piece is missed. And it's to their credit that there was such focus on, on, on that. And, you know, the, the methodologies for doing that, because that was all relatively new about how you converted the report of the red team that could be very specific to the organization into uh, you know tactics and techniques which is was the early days of the mitre attack framework and was uh, super useful in them being able to describe what it was they were doing in a kind of reproducible way so that you you could you know there was a common language between them and me and the client about what exactly they'd done and and how they'd done it so that must have been quite interesting like particularly if you're working banking i mean you've worked so many different sectors it's all interesting i mean in addition to that i did a bunch of consulting around a wide variety of things so not just SOC, but vulnerability management and architecture and i had some weird and wonderful clients i think there was only one time where i had a client where it was clear that what they wanted to do was probably criminal and we politely declined them um but yeah, in, in, in general, it was a really fascinating place to work. Um, the commute was brutal, but but really, really interesting clients, interesting people. Yeah, really, really lovely place to work. But I left them and decided to go and do a bit of freelance work. And so I did some freelancing. I did some consulting into the SOC of a gigantic global bank who have some amazing scaling challenges. So, you know, Every single technology vendor that they have, they are one of its five largest customers. Every performance bottleneck in every commercial office elf system there is, they'll hit it. You know, every trade-off that some developer made 10 years ago in the SIM or in the EDR or whatever it is, whatever technology product they're using, they'll find it because they do things at that scale. And it's that was that was fascinating to see that side of of life. You know, that was by far the kind of the largest organization I've worked for in terms of trying to defend this enormous global reach. Um, then I worked um, in a couple of different consultancies, um, doing various things: some good, some bad, some utterly toxic. Uh, so I've seen all sorts of sides of 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 that. And yeah, that's how I now find myself doing doing what I do. The other thing I do on top of running the management section response practice is I, because I ultimately work for a giant insurance company, I, uh, they provide insurance to large organizations and part of, you know, their offering to organizations that have paid a lot of money for the cyber insurance is they want to help them get better at risk management. And one of the ways we do that is to offer them cyber crisis management simulations, cyber crisis management exercises on, on done on, on, you know, sitting around a table where I walk an exec team through what it would be like for them to be uh, ransomed. So for them to have ransomware for their systems to be unavailable for them, you know, so what, what that would look like from, to their customers, what that would look like internally, what would that look like to their suppliers, what would the how would the negotiation with the ransomware actor, what would that be like? So as a practice scenario. 
so that when the real time comes that they've got playbooks that's 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 exactly it and i mean it can get quite involved um and sometimes it's quite interesting to see people's preconceived conceptions about about you know for example whether they would pay a ransom or not pay a ransom of what that what that ransom you know paying a ransom would buy you you know similarly there are other things that come as a as a as a cold cold reality so like it, it is very common now if you've been subject to ransom for your downstream suppliers and upstream suppliers to cut you off so suddenly you might discover that you're locked out of your internet banking and you're locked out of your supplier's ordering system and you're locked out because they want you their assurance your assurance that you are no longer compromised and sometimes that can take two weeks for forensics to answer longer so, well what's the general advice um from the insurer is it to pay the ransom is it not to pay the ransom so the that is always a decision for the customer my advice when i'm asked for it is not to pay so what uh, paying the ransom will buy you is two things it will buy you a key will almost certainly let you decrypt most things. So it would depend then on how cleanly something has been encrypted. So if it's an individual file, it will probably let you get it back. If it was a complex, clustered, highly transactional database that was encrypted, yeah, you're pro probably it probably wasn't encrypted cleanly, so you're probably not decrypting it cleanly. But most organizations now have pretty good backups, but there's always a preconception among, a misconception among, among uh, execs and people are not familiar with how these things play out that buying the key will suddenly wave a magic wand that will restore all your systems it is not really any quicker if you can restore from backups to restore from backups than it is to restore with the key it, it you're you're to, to be honest you're you're probably better off restoring from backups and not paying the other thing that paying potentially gets you is a video of a threat actor showing them deleting your data. And you can take that with as much salt as is appropriate. You know, someone who has broken into your environment and stolen stuff is saying, oh, we don't have it anymore. Yeah, might not be that credible, is a Not in the least bit credible, no. Yeah. I think the thing as well is they've got in. They know how to get in. You don't know how they got in. Well, usually forensics usually forensics answers that question, how they got in. If you're dealing with environments where the logging is not good or you're dealing with environments that have been really trashed, sometimes you don't work out how they got in. But usually in the rebuild of an environment, you close the holes that were, you know, you, the, the security inevitably gets tighter because, because things are built new. Well, suddenly those budgets that the businesses didn't have for security are suddenly found, aren't they? That, that, that too, yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah, which is where you sometimes get the ambulance chasing of vendors and... Oh, I'm, so, I mean, that that is, I'm pleased to say, not something I've ever been party to. That's not something that, that I've ever, you know, worked for an organisation that did that, but there certainly are organisations that do do that. You know, you've appeared in a leak site, you've clearly been breached, and therefore, would you like some forensics? That's, you know, we, we we pick up our forensics jobs because they've claimed on their cyber insurance. That's you know that they bought and with whom we already have a pre-existing relationship. So it's it you know that yeah we we absolutely don't do that. But yeah, there are people who do. So talk me through then uh, these sort of crisis environments. What what sort of things happens on these tabletop exercises? 
So I'll take people through a very light, lightweight technical description of what happens. Usually I create a fictional company that's like them, but not them. And then, and you know, it, the, I'll, I'll start off with the description of the fictional company that will uh, they will thoroughly recognize. So they will, the fictional company will be in the same locations as them, will be in the same in the same line of business, will have the same turnover, the same number of employees, all of that sort of thing. You know, we'll, we'll be enough like them that they'll fully recognize who we're talking about. Um, but what I don't like to do is create collateral create injects that use the name of the real company. So I don't want anywhere to say, you know, company X has been breached. It's much better to say, you know, fake company has been breached. And I, I now have, I've now done enough of these that I more or less have a whole conglomerate of different different businesses that I, I can use. Uh, defense manufacturing, um, an LLP, um, or, or finance, all all sorts of different companies I have in my in my toolkit that I've done tabletop exercises for that I can you know, you know do similar things with similar organizations as a university. There's there's all sorts. You create your fake company. You walk them through the kind of so you know the, the one morning their IT doesn't work properly anymore. You know, people people are phoning the service desk, people are complaining, people can't access files, people can't, you know, suddenly things don't work. You, you know, then someone in the investigation of that discovers a ransom note. The ransom note you know, says, you know, your files have been encrypted and I have a pretend threat actor that I have created called Dark Mongoose. And Dark Mongoose, Dark Mongoose has an email address and Dark Mongoose sends a threatening email to the CEO of my fictional company all of these are things that, you know, the text of those emails, all of the ransom notes are all lifted from real attacks, real breaches, real cases that I've been involved with. And we then, I then take them through the decision points they would have to make. So what are they telling staff? How quickly can they reasonably restore? What are they telling their customers? What are they telling their suppliers? What are they telling their regulator? If they've got a regulator, the, you know, for example, the slide with who would you have to tell, generally speaking, doesn't have fewer than six or seven sets of logos on it of, of all the different people that that organization would have to tell. You know, do you notify law enforcement? Yeah. that That's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's worth notifying law enforcement and sometimes they'll, inhi- you know, inhibit the investigation. Do you have an amount of time before you can tell law enforcement or can't tell law enforcement? Like, is it, do you have, if you don't report, so there's no obligation there's unless unless your regulator or or somebody is telling you you must notify law enforcement there's no there's no you don't certainly in the UK you're obligated to tell law enforcement and the risk of telling law enforcement is that they might come along and say well we'd like to take those servers away to forensically examine them because we you know we think there's a chance of being able to prosecute whoever it is down the road if you're looking to rebuild your environment onto that same hardware <laughs> that's a problem for you because, well, you don't have it anymore. So it's not necessarily, and I have seen organizations whose, whose, whose rebuild was disrupted by, by, by law enforcement investigation. It's not, it's, it's not. In the US, it's very different. The FBI will almost always be notified. Um, in fact, they'll be almost always notified by your privacy council. It's, it's almost a standard thing. It's less, much less the case here. There's not really, a, not you know, there's not, people often don't tell law enforcement and there's no obligation to tell law enforcement. Yeah, I suppose there's different sectors will have a cert as well, won't they? So if you work in the financial services, you might 
speak to colleagues in competitors? Yes, that's that is a thing, although that tends to be before the fact rather than after it. Sometimes it's it's people tend to want to bury their head in the sand when when they've they've had suffered that kind of that kind of breach. Yeah, but so, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've worked with the likes of FSI and and so on in 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 the past, and and the the NCSC sys sharing forums, and they can be extremely useful. But often when people have a breach, they'd rather really you know they might talk about it a year hence, but they'd, you know whilst it's ongoing, they'd rather keep it to themselves. And there's that kind of interesting question around, well, you know, um, how, what are you telling your customers? How are you telling your customers? Are you telling, you know, you're, you're, you have 72 hours to notify the ICO. That's, uh, you know, that that's not a lot of time. You're, you will not know what has happened within that 72 hours for sure. Well, how do people tend to react? Have you, have you ever seen people cry? Like, no, it, I, it, mine, mine are not, they're not that bad. Um, they're not that bad. It's it's. I think it, it comes as a, a learning experience. So the fact that paying the ransom doesn't magically fix things tends to come as a surprise. The fact that your up and downstream suppliers will cut you off comes as a surprise. The fact that you should often be much less concerned about what the ICO will do than about litigation from your customers also comes as a surprise. So one of the things I always talk about is, you know, the risk of um, in the US class actions and, and and in the UK group litigation, which is very much a thing, you know, kind of be, be, being sued for the data loss by by customers is, is yeah. Um, and then the, the hit to reputation that people take. So whether that is, you know, people uh you know net promoter score and share price and and, and other similar things is always a, a makes makes people uncomfortable and i we've we've talked about it already but you know the 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 the, the kind of often people start off with the absolute hard we will never pay a ransom we will never negotiate and the reality is you should always negotiate whether you pay it so so well that's exactly it is is to, is to buy yourself time to secure your environment and to buy yourself, potentially, you know, it's part of the negotiation, the, the the actor will give you a list of what they took, will prove to you that they took it, will prove that they can decrypt files. There are also some other, you know, interesting things there that, that, that can, can be useful information to you. And yeah, it, it's negotiation through a specialist negotiator is a very wise thing to do and that comes as a surprise to people that's you know sometimes they will think oh we would never negotiate the ones that don't tend to to have a more painful time than the ones that do then that's completely separate from your decision to pay i suppose another thing to think about is if timing if you suddenly haven't got access to your bank and it's a day before payday you've suddenly got a lot of employees that suddenly aren't very happy about that Funnily enough, one of the one of the things I do in, when I'm putting together a tabletop exercise for a client is ask them when do they want this to be, when in the future do they want me to set this, and you know what would be the most painful day for you. And absolutely, running payroll is one I've done them for universities where the um, the answer was you know a couple of weeks before the A level results come out because they get there they they are meant to be making you know it's 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 some universities are taking. 30 40 percent of the students during clearing if you cannot make clearing decisions in the two weeks before the a-level results come out then they you know that could be the difference between uh you know financial ruin and and continue you know not being able to continue as an institution 
because you know if they, if they can't take people through clearing then they don't have enough to make ends meet yeah like wow i suppose every business is going to have peaks and troughs uh like p- key times that are crucial you know some people want it to be when would be kind of most of to what well, if we had it at thanksgiving or on christmas eve or you know what happens if half the people we'd like to get around the call are on a plane or drunk or you know otherwise unavailable to to Your staff party christmas party yeah yeah, I mean, it used to, it's, it's, it's a joke. If you work in, if you work in consulting, doing instant response, as, as I do, and and have for many years, the number of, of you know, Friday is the busiest day of the week. Things land. Don't push to prod on a Friday. <laughs> things land on a Friday. Well, that, that, that too, but... I think it's actually people discover that they're hacked on a Wednesday or a Thursday, get to Friday afternoon and realise we probably shouldn't go into the weekend without help. And that's the point where they put their hand up and say, please, can we have help? And so the, if you graph to the number of what, the days of the week the jobs come yeah. in. That's a bit like recruitment, to be honest. <laughs> Fridays are always busy. <laughs> well, it's, 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 if you're looking for social life, then, then being, a, being an IR person is not, not ideal. Yeah. So on that, so what's been the most fascinating role? What's been the most enjoyable role for you? Has it been those incidents that you've been responding to? Has it been SOC architecture? Has it been consulting? What's been the most enjoyable? I, oh, that's hard. I love the variety of consulting. I really love the variety of consulting. I have, um, I mean, I've definitely had jobs I've hated, um, but, but um, you know, in the main, I've enjoyed the places I've worked. And, you know, even more so the people I've worked with, I've worked worked with some amazing people, you know, in the, in the consulting places I've worked with and in previous in-house roles, like at the bank, just the phenomenal people I've I've worked with, I would say is is the the thing I like the best. I've just done, I've done so many weird jobs in my time. It's hard to put a finger on it. Why do you think this is a great career choice then for somebody who's starting out? Why should they go into incident response? Is it the people? Is it the roles? Is it the clients? Is it a mix of all of that? Oh, I do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, am I I saying that that is a thing that they should do? Oh, well, what what would you say? (laughs) Do you want want to wind up as tired and jaded as as I am? Uh, Yeah, it's, it's a really, really, really interesting way to earn a living. There's a tremendous amount of variety. There's a tremendous amount of change. Things don't stay still for any length of time. You, you I mean, you talked to Eliza in a really very interesting chat, and she was saying, "Well, she, she's, she's not, you know, doing technical things anymore, and her technical skills are not what they were when she was." And, and the same is true of me. I'm primarily a manager of people, and I do technical bits around the edges, but I'm not. You know, I'm not nearly as sharp as some of the people I have working for me or, you know, as I used to be, but you pick up other skills along the way. And I think that one of the interesting things about this is the ability to do that is you evolve from being an individual contributor, you know, a junior one to being a senior one, to being a manager, to being a manager of a bunch of people. And that's, you know, one of the one of the things that running a SOC gives you. I, you know, I absolutely love the team I work with and learning from them and supporting them and mentoring them. That's one of the best parts of my job. Yeah. What do you look for then when you're hiring in your teams? What do you look for from juniors? What do you look for for experienced people? Is it is it is it skills? Is it mindset? I so uh, so it's 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 so partly it's background. I tend not to favour people who have 
not so i don't care if you've not worked in security but i don't think that security is an entry-level job i would much rather go uh, hire someone who had worked for two years on a service desk and i don't think that working in security operations center is a job that you can do straight out of university effectively I think you need that experience of working in enterprise and understanding what it's like to be in a business before you can do the job effectively. I can teach you whatever technical skills you need. I cannot teach you to be good with customers. Like that's just the thing that you need to be able to do. And whilst the, you know, I have done both. So I have worked in internal enterprise socks that were a cost center. And I have worked in externally facing uh, socks that were a profit center for the service provider. And those two things are, they're different, different, you know, like very, you know, the, the latter tends to be more SLA driven and, 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 and more about making money and, and yes, delivering a quality service to your, to your customers. But, but, you know, you're looking at the bottom line, you maybe don't go into the nth degree on everything, but you get much more, variety and volume so you will learn a lot faster one of the issues with 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 working in an internal sock is you maybe don't learn things as quickly because you don't see the same variety of stuff yeah or scale that you would do i mean you can certainly see scale uh, i've worked in places where the, there were scale, scale lack of scale was not the problem um but yeah you don't you don't see the same variety of of things you know, that's one of the advantages of being a SOC consultant that I've had is that most people have, have only got the experience of working in the SOCs that they have worked in. Yeah. And every SOC's different. Every role's different. And every SOC, every, every SOC is different. They all often have the same problems. That's obviously, you know, there's very little new in this. You know, they often all have the same problems, but every SOC is different. But seeing that variety has really influenced and impacted the way that that, that I look at, at what what good looks like. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what good looks like. I've built maturity models for socks and 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 performance models for socks. You know what what does good look like? And it's that do you know consulting has let me do that in a way that I think working in house would never have would never have done. So on the sort of sock being an entry-level role obviously with the work I did with capsock a lot of people go through the capsock courses and then do go into sock roles where they've got teams where they can train people because they've got a base level of skills but so capsock people typically will have had a job before. yeah but yes they will have had jobs before that makes a difference so they'll have worked for an employer before they know they're bringing those other impact skills they understand how business works yeah and 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 customer service and that that is that is that is super useful i it, it's the it's the people who have done a lot of home learning often but have never never studied never never it's not they've not studied they've done lots of studying but it's been in the abstract in theory it's soul study not actually problem solving or uh... Being able to write a good, clear email to a customer that explains the customer's problem and explains how the customer can not suffer that problem in the future or explains a deeply technical thing that that someone has done to the customer is much more useful to me than being able to investigate the deeply technical thing. 
because actually in some ways it's a rarer skill yeah those those impact skills i don't like calling them soft skills because they're still quite hard to learn it's, it's those impact skills or professional skills oh much much easier much easier to send you on a course to teach technical skills and it is to teach you that and there's no course i can send you in send anyone on that will teach you not to be a dick there isn't. There isn't. and i cannot <laughs> cannot stress enough the importance of not being a dick and that that there's i can't like I, I, you know if if i hire someone and i find that that's how they are i will find a way to get rid of them because I, that you're that that's that does not that does not work for me yeah cyber is a people industry whether we're dealing, you know, we talk about data breaches, but these are people's lives. These are people's businesses. It's people's money. There's a human behind that data. And that's that's a really important part of what we do and why we do it, I think, in this industry. Uh, I think that's what we have to remember. There's a person that's deeply impacted by this. It might be someone's grandma. It might be someone's child. Hopefully it's not child. Or grandpas, yeah. It's much easier, to, much easier to think of them as machines. It's much easier to think of them as machines, and not me- mess- messy people. But yeah, it, it, if you're looking to, you know, but both juniors and seniors, I, I expect seniors to have both. But but juniors, I, I, I like it's all about the service. It's all about customer service, and it's. I've I've had people kind of challenge, for example, my decision to not not interview them. I say, well, you've, you know, it's nice, but you've never actually had a job. You've you've you know you've got all of this all of these pieces of paper, including some pieces of paper that you're you're meant to have multi multiple years of experience to achieve. But you've spent all this time studying, and that that's that's cool. But 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 you you've, you 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 can't call yourself a sock analyst if you've never been paid to work on a sock. You can't, you know, you, you 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 might aspire to it, but but you can't call yourself in it. And I'd much rather you had no pieces of paper, and like an in, an aptitude and an interest and a background in customer service. That's actually far. Those are the best people. Yeah, I say this to graduates, where you know that if you've worked in a bar whilst you're doing your degree, put that on your CV. It's still important. It's massively important. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. And if you've done, if you want to work in a stock and you've done two years in a service desk, I'll give you a go. Even if you don't have any pieces of paper, if you've got pieces of paper, as long as your arm, about all you've done is achieve those pieces of paper, then I'll, I'll move on to the next candidate. So that's an important note for people. So advice then, have you ever had a piece of advice during your career that's been really critical for you to progress or is there any advice that you would like to give to your younger self that actually if I'd learned that along the way that would have fast-tracked oh so certainly advice um our our mutual friend um Paul says you know Cyrus small town don't be a dick it's so true it's it's so true and yeah and yet (laughs) and yet it's a piece of advice that some people in the industry could you know use use what would be worth following i think it is a small community obviously we have a skill shortage it's a really small town it is a really small town the people who've been around and you you see this when you we were talking like 
pre the recording about infosec you go to infosec to see your friends and your colleagues and to catch up with the industry or you go to a b-side and you see those people that you see maybe once or twice a year but they all know each other yeah it's it's definitely a useful advice for anyone trying to get in just remember it is small i i can teach you any technical skill you like you know i'll send you on a course but no one can teach you that i think you can come back from making mistakes oh yes people get people get better people grow up people mature definitely but at the end of the day it's a really small town and how you treat other people will either get you a good reputation or a bad reputation and i take certainly how i look after my team and my people really seriously and i treat them as people and not as resources, not as SOC analysts, but as people. And, you know, I've got a really good retention rate in my SOC because they know that I've got their back and I am like a tiger to anyone that, you know, might, whether that is internally or externally, um, you know, I've got their back. Yeah. <laughs> we did, we, we do. We need to look after our employees. We need to look after our people. We need to look after our friends and competitors as well. We are one industry that's fighting the bad guys, or at least we should be. We shouldn't be scrapping and fighting amongst ourselves. It should be one fight against those bad guys. Yes, yes Infosite does love its drama. <laughs> it does. It does. I can't really be bothered with it, but it does love its drama. Yeah, it does. And we, if we go back to, are we... It's not even necessarily about being kind or are we remembering the humans that are part of our customers and our teams and, and putting people back at the heart of everything that we do. It, it's a nice reminder of, yeah, I, li I like that. That's a good place for us to end. So, yay. Thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Excellent. That was Stephen Deutsch with the important message of don't be a dick, which I think is a great message for anyone starting out in this industry. Uh, one of the resources that was shared was seenusecases.com and there's plenty of resources there for anybody who's new to uh, industry as well who wants to get into SOC careers. If you'd like to be a guest on the Be Inside the Podcast, maybe you've got a message to share or if there's somebody that you'd like to hear from or an area of cyber that you want to find out more about, drop us a message at beincyber at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe and share with your friends.